Welcome to Answering Religious Error. I'm Stephen Russell. I'll be guest hosting this evening as part of our Tuesday Keeping My Head on Straight series. Um, ARE has decided to do a special study this evening on transgenderism, and uh, we're going to be bringing on uh, several guest panelists this evening to talk about that, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Want to just uh, make a couple of announcements to the the regulars, reminders, and to those who may be tuning in for the first time. Every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern, we go live for a Bible Q and A. Um, if you have a question that you would like to ask, uh, you can ask it during the show. You can email us before or during the show at questions at answeringreligiousair.com, or you can private message us on Facebook at facebook.com/slash answeringreligiousair. But tonight we're going to talk about transgen transgenderism and uh, let's bring on our panel this evening. Uh, we have with us uh, Larson Plyler, a uh, good friend who preaches over in Russellville, Alabama. We have uh, Ben Lawrence, who is uh, lives in Arkansas, but is coming to us from Omaha, Nebraska this evening. And Walt, then David Walt Hill. Where now? Walt Hill. It's Walt uh, Hill. An hour right. and a half north of. Okay, well, in, in Walt Hill, Nebraska then. And uh, and then finally, uh, David Fidiment coming from California. And David, what, what's the town you live in in California? Uh, I live in Livermore, uh, but I preach in Dublin. Okay, uh, preaching in Dublin, California. Um, appreciate everybody being on the show this evening and looking forward to having uh, this conversation about transgender ideology. Just want to say at the outset um, that I think it's important for us to be thinking about issues like this. It's the sort of thing that uh, as we hear it discussed in the world, maybe we think that has nothing to do with me or maybe we're even uh, so uh, distant from the thought processes of the transgender ideology that we just think there's there's no use in, in giving time or thought to it. But it's something that is very influential, very obviously influential, and is going to be more so, it seems, as uh, as the years go by. And so um, we, we need to be thoughtful in how we think about this or any other issue. Understand that all the men on this panel are um, people who preach the gospel, who study the word of God frequently. And we're all coming from a premise of that being the true word of God. And, uh, and so as we think about and talk about these issues, we're going to be using that as our foundation and as the foundation for our response. Maybe you're listening this evening. You think, well, I don't even care what the Bible says. The, the Bible, um, I don't believe in the Bible as the word of God. We're willing to have that conversation. It's not the conversation we're going to be having tonight, but by all means, if you'd like to talk about that or other issues surrounding this that we don't get to, uh, please let us know and we'll we'll try to make time all along. If you do have questions or comments during the show, um, we'll try to um, you know include those as we go along during the show. And so we, we welcome that uh, interaction and feedback during the show this evening. Well, to get started, we're going to be um, talking about a few talking points. If you saw the show notes, then then you can kind of see some of the path that we're going to be taking. And that's, that's our general outline for this evening. And to start with, what we want to talk about is what is the transgender movement? What's the ideology? And in just simple terms, you know, defining what's being said, what is it that we're answering this evening? And so, uh, Ben, why don't you start us off uh, telling us about that? 
Well, if you uh, if you would have asked somebody, you know, 50 or so years ago, uh, what's a what's gender? They would have said, well, that's the thing that, you know, uh, the, the when you're born, you you look down and you can know what you are, you know, and the, the doctor says, hey, it's a boy or it's a girl. There's only two of them. Um, but now um, the idea that gender has become separated from biological sex and uh, and and the idea that um, the the idea that w what you feel becomes kind of uh, the the main feature of who you are as far as gender goes so if you feel like a girl then um, that might mean you're a girl or if you feel like a boy that might mean you're a boy no matter what your uh, genitals say no matter what your chromosomes say and so forth and uh, on the surface it seems like okay that you know why can't we just accept that why what's what's the big deal here and uh, and this kind of goes in hand in hand with what some people call uh, gender dysphoria uh, which is the the idea or the the uh, psychological condition of someone who feels like they are the opposite sex of what they actually are or what their bio biological sex is. And so, um, you know, a lot of it is about people struggling, people uh, trying to figure out their identity and working with whatever maybe traumas they've had in the past, trying to put that all together in their mind. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, it just makes you feel more alive to be a girl than a boy or vice versa. And so why can't we just accept those people for who they are, who they say they are and, and so forth? Yeah. And so I think I think the some of the key elements you pointed out there is it's that distinction between physical, what we would call sex and and gender being something different. Right. It's something up here that is separated and feeling is a word that, that you use there. And I think um, people might say it's even stronger than that, but, but it's, it's what I feel or who I feel like I am. And of course you mentioned that, you know, there is the transgender from, uh, from a boy or a male to a female, from a, a boy to a girl, girl to a, a boy or man to woman, woman to man. There's also, I don't feel like either one of those. And then of course it's kind of spiraled out to, um, I feel like something that is not defined by those. And so we end up with these, you know, dozens of, of genders and so forth. And it's, and basically what it's done is, is said to people, express yourself and your gender, um, whatever that means to you in any way it comes to you. And then um, the rest of us need to accept that. And, and as you said, What's the harm? You know, I mean, I think that's a lot of the if, if, if you're not a transgender person yourself, then the the sort of allied response is, why do you care? Why do you care what these people think about their own gender and so forth? And we'll, we'll talk about maybe what some of the consequences are that, about that as we go along. But in addition to you have people who you know feel that way and they're just looking for some comfort, uh, some acceptance, maybe. Uh, you also have maybe some more sinister aspects of this. Uh, Larson, why don't you talk about some of those? Yeah. So there are people who 
are, I think you've used the phrase before, Stephen, there are apostles and then there are refugees, right? And so a large group of these people are refugees. In other words, they are affected by this. They feel the pain of this gender dysphoria. I think we would all say those are results of sin and of the fall. Not, I, I think that there are people who have these feelings of a disconnection between their psyche and their body through no fault of their own, right? Maybe because of trauma or maybe because of some predisposition or something like that. Uh, I don't know how far to go with all that. But what I do know is that there are a lot of people who rather than trying to um, maybe help these people through a mental or a psychological approach, have decided that the best way to approach is to actually reshape their bodies or to use uh, medical treatments in order to make, so when, when Ben mentioned gender dysphoria, right, that's the idea that our psyche and our body don't match, that there's a mismatch or a lack of correspondence there. So in previous generations, what somebody would have said is, okay, that's evidence that you have a mental process that is faulty. But in recent years, what has happened is they say, no, it's not the mental process that's faulty. That's legitimate. What we're concerned about is that your body doesn't match. And not everyone who performs the surgeries or prescribes the medicines is, is sinister in the sense that, that they're just out to make a buck. But there is a lot of that. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there are sinister approaches behind all of this. Um, and really, that's not our concern for the most part tonight. What I'm thinking about is here's a person who is, is dealing with this, or here's a person who has a family member who, who is questioning um, their sense of who they are and, or a Bible believer who is having to deal with this. Maybe their children at school are encountering this ideology and, and how can we help them think through this in a biblical way? And so, um, like you said, there are more sinister approaches, but I think particularly what we're interested in is here are people who say, I want help or I need some need some information about this. And that's kind of what we're trying to do tonight. Yeah. So as you look into the ideology, you're going to see reports and studies being done that sort of are exposing, I think, some of that more sinister element to make you angry. Um, and and I understand that. Um, and so I don't want to minimize that at all. It's just really uh, the problem there is is a different problem than transgenderism. It's greed and, and all the things that are uh, present in every area where people come in who have ulterior motives um, and, uh, and maybe don't even start off that way, but that's what yeah. happens, you know, a, as the, the thing goes along, maybe they start off as genuine supporters, but Hey, wow, that's a lot of money. Um, and so just understand that at least for this conversation, we're kind of setting that whole element of this to the side, right? We're not, we're not dealing, we can't, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we can't deal with all of that this evening. We're just trying to deal with like this, this whole notion, right. Mm -hmm. uh, that we're introducing that you could, you can be mentally, you can be something different uh, than, than the way that you were born. Um, we have a question about uh, gender dysphoria in the DSM uh, five and that is uh, the DSM-5, if, if some of our um, viewers are wondering, is, is uh, basically a, a, a medical manual that lays out all of these sort of uh, disorders and so forth, and, and those change over time. And so, uh, Ben, do you have some response to that? Yeah, so the DSM-4 had, uh, as far as I remember, 
the DSM-4 had gender dysphoria as the official, you know, main category of what we're talking about as far as the psychological problem uh, goes. But then the DSM-5 updated it to, I think, if I remember right, to call it gender, gender identity disorder uh, as opposed to gender dysphoria. Um, and, and what they did was they tweaked it a, the definition a little bit. What they did was in DSM and DSM four, it was anybody who feels like they are the opposite of their biological sex or that their body does not, their mind does not match their body. You know, anybody who feels that way, gender dysphoria. Well, now DSM and five, uh, kind of gets rid of that and it and it says, well, you only have the gender identity disorder if it has the component of depression or if it has the component of anxiety, that it does some kind of extra stress on you as opposed to just having these a little bit frustrated feelings, you know. So that's that's one of the differences as far as how that goes. So, so it went from, I guess what you're saying then, it went from um, being a, um, that anybody who was intensely involved. So it would go from anybody who felt the need to transition yes. from one gender to another yeah. would have fallen into the category. And even so now, even you, yeah, even if you didn't want to try, right. you know, right. Absolutely. But, but anybody general, who had more general, term. right. Yeah. And so then it went to now it's got to be you're, you're showing signs of depression. And, yeah. Like and it's bothering you. Intense. Severely yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Well, that's a pretty big shift, I would say. Um, David, you got anything to add here as we're starting out um, before we move on to get into some philosophies? Uh, really, that's kind of what I'm looking forward to. Also, I'm uh, excited to learn from uh, some of what Ben had just mentioned there. That was interesting. Um, but kind of seeing how the things develop over time and and um, getting to kind of some of the true believer aspect of that makes. Well, that's uh, then in that case, uh, let's move into that. Um, one of the things about um, transgenderism for a lot of us is that it just it feels so foreign um, and it feels um, very new and um, and maybe out of left field. And we just um, we feel like it's happened so quickly. And uh, and, you know, it feels like it's an invented sort of a thing out of thin air. But I think uh, as we look at some history and uh, and connect some dots going back, well, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is it's it's really not so new or at least the foundations of it are not new. And I know David, um, I've heard him talk about some of the. Uh, sort of underlying foundations and the language that we can see attached. And so, David, why don't you tell us about some of the patterns of behavior here in transgenderism and the, the way it's being presented and some things that we see in history? Sure. So, uh, I, I, like a couple of years ago, I felt a lot that same way also, where what on earth is going on? Did I miss something <laughs> that popped up? And the answer is yes, I did, actually. And I missed things that had been going on long before I was born. And you know, and even my parents also as well, is that there's there's been several different like strata of ideologies and philosophies that have been all kind of piecing together over time, kind of snowballing, if you will, um, 
all the way back even to like the 1800s and probably before I know, um, Stephen, that you've got some um, some older philosophers to mention that have some groundwork for that. But you go back to um, really kind of starting from uh, this one particular inroad is from Marx's philosophies, which, you know, people would say like, well, wh- how does how does like an economist's philosophies come into this? But uh, he's Marx is also well known as one of the fathers of sociology. He's he's often included in a lot of that. And so economics is just one part of how people function. And he was in some ways trying to like address all of those things in one. And ultimately what a lot of that comes down to is uh, the differences between various classes. You've heard of the bourgeois and the proletariat and how these classes are in opposition to each other. And as these uh, philosophies develop, then it gets to the point where it's, well, all people are either being oppressed by someone or oppressing someone else. And it doesn't really matter on what scale you want to measure that. Marx started with um, economics, and he started with the bourgeois as the the wealthy and upper classes. And then you've got the proletariat, which are the working classes. And so this is language that, that we've used that I've heard kind of underlying conversation all my life is uh, upper class, middle class, lower class. These are all even if people mentioning these things don't don't believe in Marxism, it's this is language that came from Marx. But where this ties into the conversation tonight is that you can apply it to all sorts of other different spectrums. So you've got class spectrum, but you can have things like uh, gender spectrum in that men oppress women is how that typically gets presented. Um, and then obviously that's just a very short skip over to uh, you know, the terminology is like cis um, normative uh, type genders versus all sorts of other genders that might be able to be created. And so whatever. Let me let me yeah. just go ahead and define cis normative for maybe some audience sure. members who haven't heard that term before. Sure. So cis normative is is kind of what we would say from like our perspective is just normally how things go. You your chromosomes are female, you are born female. And so that is kind of the the normative part of that is that is what is usually regarded by society as the normal thing um, by which everything else is compared. Uh, and so then same thing for male chromosomes and male, um, uh, uh, male gender. And so what that then does is, okay, if this is the normal or the normative, then anything that doesn't classify as the quote normal is then within a marginalized and therefore an oppressed class. So it's not just money. It's not just male versus female. It's not just, there's several other different categories you could start to lump this into. You could really start to create any other category where there's the majority versus the minority. It's the same thing here with this. And so that what that does is you, you hear a lot of it in the language. And uh, Marx was big on language. A lot of his followers thereafter moving on into like the 20th century, early on into the 60s, uh, really steered hard into that language is what will help us uh, overthrow oppression, whatever that might be. And so in this conversation's sake, that is the cis normative oppression, uh, allowing us to be as free as we'd like to be. Yeah. And so along those lines, so that, that's that's what we're seeing just across the board in every conversation. It seems that that we're you know, we, we talk about intersectionality, which is to isolate people into 
various minority groups and then to define those various minority groups at, at, at varying levels of oppression. And of course, the transgender uh, movement uh, has been identified that way, along with several other elements. And that's one of the elements here is we see they, they attach themselves in identity uh, in, about race relations. You know, you're talking about elements of oppression. And so very obviously um, in really any country, but especially in America, it's not hard to find examples of of a race of people being oppressed because they belong to this race. And so what's happened now is is you've got the same language there and and you're attaching now this identity and uh, and say, well, you know, here are these people who were being mistreated and we're being mistreated in the same way they were really for the same reasons, because this is just who we are. Um, but that brings up the question of how do we get here identity wise? Right. So, you know, that to it's one thing to say you have uh, the poor class. Well, well, let's start with it's one thing to say you have this race of people. Right. And, it, and it's based on the color of their skin or the part of the world that they're from. You know, it's either ethnicity or, or skin color, something, some defining characteristic like that. And and that's immutable. It's an immutable quality. You're born with that. There's nothing you can do to change that. Well, then um, you have something like class, which is not exactly static. Right. It's not necessarily right. You, you're not necessarily going to be poor all your life or rich all your life. Those are movable categories. And yet there still is some solidarity. And we could even put income levels or or wealth levels and say, all right, below this level, you belong here and, and above this level, you belong here. It's still pretty, um, pretty hard definitions we're talking about. But then we move something to something like this. And, and for us, we're like, this is so movable. And it, and it feels so malleable. And that's one of the things about the characteristics of it. It seems very changeable. Uh, and so it's not, it certainly doesn't seem like an immutable quality, but that's the way they're talking about it. Like it is an immutable yeah. quality. So like uh, Larson, can you talk about some of the philosophers, even going back, as he said, about how we get here to that being talked about as an immutable identity quality? Yeah, and and let me just say something about that word immutable. One of the things about this is that like it could be it could change. So day to day, your particular gender expression may change, and so that may be sometimes why it's a little jarring for people because I, I'm expected to go with the various uh, psyches that this person might have. So having having said that. I think there's a few steps along the way that are important. So maybe you've heard the quote from Rene Descartes, the philosopher who said, I think, therefore I am. And basically his, his contention was, is that the way that I know I'm a real person is based on the fact that I can think about my mental processes. All right. So it, there were roots before that, but that is kind of a, a, an indication that people's thinking about the world and where they fit within the world is being framed more about what's on the inside than what's on the outside. Um, and also being less constrained by traditional authority structures and more about how I feel. Now, Rene Descartes was not a uh, was not somebody, I think, who was trying to push the boundaries of gender or something. But what he's doing is he's he's laying the groundwork, perhaps unintentionally, and maybe he's not all wrong in what he's saying. But he's highlighting the aspect of ourselves 
that is primarily mental and, and psychological. So you move that step forward to like Darwin, for example, who says that our bodies are not designed with purpose. In fact, they're not designed at all. They are the result of eons of accidents. And so you've got those two things together, right? Mental processes are most significant. My body is not meant for some particular purpose. It just is. So now what we thought was solid, my biological makeup, is now way less sure. And now my mental processes are more definitive. Then you move forward into the 20th century and you have Sigmund Freud, who basically says that the the driving impulse and the, the core facet of people's identity is their sexual expression. And so and then you move that into postmodernism, Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, some of these people who say that any standard, any normal, and so that idea of uh, heteronormative, anything that is uh, classed as a, a traditional style or a, maybe, maybe we wouldn't say a moral framework, well, that is just a tool of the oppressor. All right, so now you have all of the things in the blender that now people can say, I am not what my body says I am. My body has no specific purpose. How I feel is who I am. And my sexual identity makes me more who I am than anything else, right? And so that's why you have people who identify not as uh, an American or not as a whatever, uh, as, as a, a husband, but a homosexual or I am a, uh, I am a, a, a homosexual or whatever, whatever the, um, the gender identity that has become so core. Now, let me say this. Most people are not reading Foucault and they're not reading Derrida and they're not reading Freud, but the college professors are and the advertisers are. And this comes down to us. It filters through media. It filters through commercials. It filters through education. And there is concerted effort to try to create this disassociation. And, and you even, you would see it in advertising, right? How many products are appealing to how it makes you feel, right? And that you're not bound by the constraints that you once were. Feel differently uh, about this. And so I think that maybe sometimes we buy into that uh, because we say that I'm more about what's on the inside than I'm on the outside. And while in some cases that's probably tame and maybe even insignificant, it does buy into a narrative that our body is irrelevant to who we are. And biblically, that's not true. And I hope we have an opportunity to talk about that in a little while. Yeah. And, you you know, thinking about that as far as like uh, bodily constraints, um, you know, people, the, the phrase you can be anything you want to be um, is, is certainly a phrase that I think. In, in a very broad principle, we'd be like, yes, I want to say that to my children. And I mm -hmm. like that. And there's a certain element of freedom that goes along with that. And so it's a very American kind of a phrase. And let me just say it is a very Western kind of a phrase that you can be anything you want to be. And so we want the possibilities to be open. But really, sane people, um, you know, all through the ages have meant that within certain reasonable constraints. They didn't yeah. mean literally right. anything that you wanted to be. And so we, we've always sort of understood some some elements of constraint. And, and I think one of the issues for us today is that we think technology has 
broken us free from those constraints. Yeah. So now, you know, I mean, a hundred years ago, if somebody was a man and wanted to be a woman, there's very limited capacity on what he could do besides just simply changing his style, you know, his, his hair, his dress, makeup, whatever. But, but that's, that's the end uh, of that. And so, um, you know, what, what's happened now is at least we, we've told ourselves as a culture, we've told ourselves that there are ways that technology will allow us to move from one sex to the other. And now we're talking about pregnant men and, and so forth. And so that this, this thing is possible to move back and forth in a sort of real way uh, that we're able to do this. Of course, we're still not able to do it um, at the, uh, you know, at the, at the level of chromosomes. Yeah. But, but we are trying. And so the, there's um, all sorts of um, inhibitors, hormone um, inhibitors and so forth that are being put out on the market and being uh, given to even uh, underage children so that it will stunt their puberty, keep them. And one of the things that they're saying is they're going to keep them from going into puberty um, so that they can make the choice later on. Um, but the point that I would make there as far as the philosophy is you can be anything, hmm. anything that you want to be. Um, and it's, it's not true. There are limits to that. Now, let me add another element here, and that is choice. So there is this identity element that we've separated. We've separated the mental from the physical, made this more, more important to identity than, than this. And then we've uh, added, as Larson pointed out with, with uh, Darwin, um, de-emphasized even more the physical and its importance is design. And then we've added the sexual element in Freud. And then we've added postmodernism on top of that, where there is no certainty of reality and language. Um, but in addition to all of that, there's this notion, and it's a very American notion again, which is it's all about choice. And you don't have to be anything you didn't choose to be. And so we, we really throw off this notion of determinism. And I don't believe in absolute determinism, but but it's it's almost like absolute non-determinism. Like there are no determining factors. Yeah. I can be the determiner of everything in my life. And, and then reality hits us in the face. And we understand that in a lot of other areas. We understand that in athletics. I mean, none of us are, are planning on trying out for the NBA, even if we desire it. We, we all know there are many physical limitations to whatever dreams we might have in that direction. And so um, we do understand it in some ways. But here, it's almost like we've blocked this place off. We can't talk about these realities uh, in this circumstances. Um, yeah. Let me jump in right there for just a yeah, second. Absolutely. Um, so, and I'm, I'm not trying to dominate the conversation, but so Ben started off talking about at the very beginning that, you know, there's this distinction. People say your gender is malleable and your sex is not. Well, there are people now who are on the pushing edge of this who say that even biological sex is not a real determinative, yeah, determinative yeah. Uh, identification, right? So you hear this language in uh, the question, what gender or what sex were you assigned at birth? And the picture there is it, it is as if a doctor had to kind of like run tests and do some investigation in order to determine what sex you were at birth, as if he was the one who made the decision to assign that. 
it, no, you were already that. He just, it was recognizing something, not investigating something. It was recognizing something that already was. And there are various ways of obfuscating that reality. But what happens is, is that people act as if now that whatever sex you are indicated to be on your driver's license or on your birth certificate was just a random and arbitrary designation that the doctor could not know when you were delivered, that it would have it had to wait until after you had had time to have some sort of gendered expression. You had to have a time to develop some sense of self. And what's important for us to recognize is that's not the way that it works um, and that you are a man or a woman down to your chromosomes. And I know that there are efforts to change that, but I was watching a, a TED talk earlier uh, by a woman named Paula Johnson, who is a cardiologist. And it, it's, it's fascinating because she says, and I'm quoting her now, every cell has a sex. And what that means is that men and women are different down to the cellular and molecular level. It means that we're different across all of our organs, from our brains to our hearts, our lungs, our joints. And she, as a medical professional, goes through and talks about all of the ways in which recognizing that is extremely important for medical treatment, for example, that the way you treat heart disease in a woman is different than the way you treat heart disease in a man. And the way you treat lung cancer or the way you understand the causes of lung cancer is different for women than for men. And especially in like mental arenas with depression and things like that. Women suffer from depression on, an, uh, on a much higher rate. So it's it's as deep as every cell. And so one of the things, men can't become women and women can't become men because you cannot change some of those things that even though technology has allowed us to maybe change some of the sexual organs and things like that, it doesn't go all the way deep. And, and there is more to, so the famous question that's being asked right now by some people pushing back on this is, well, what is a woman? Um, what people think you can do is that you can just put on certain clothes or you can have a surgery and now you are a woman. And what I, I think the consensus of the world has been until just very recently was that that is not really possible. Right. And, and, and so let me give you one example and, and, and I'll pass it off to somebody else. So I went to Seattle this past summer, uh, which I would call a progressive city. Um, and in Pike's Place Market, so you might know this from where they throw the fish, in the basement of that of that uh, kind of uh, area, there were restrooms. And there was a women's restroom and a men's restroom. And on the floor in tile, very neatly laid out, on the floor in tile in front of the men's restroom, it had an X and a Y. And in front of the women's restroom, it had an X and an X on the floor. Now, this is one of the most progressive cities in America in a place where people come from all over the world and use the bathroom. And they recognized XY, XX. We know the difference between a man and a woman. Now, I imagine there will be a reconstruction project very soon on those restrooms. But even more like a deconstruction project, yeah, a deconstruction. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But let me let me just say this, that. Sometimes people will try to make you feel foolish and ignorant and uncivilized and unsophisticated because you don't believe what every human being has believed for the last millennia. Um, and, and in addition to that, they will make you, it will be as if you are immoral because you are not recognizing 
um, this this immutable fact that biological biological sex, the very fact that I have to say biological sex, and you know, and sometimes it's put in scare quotes, and not just sex, um, demonstrates the the effect that that has had. That I have to characterize it in that way. So go ahead. Which I think is one of the big important reasons why language comes up into this too, is because language is a big deal about how we recognize reality, how we talk about the things that we see. And so that's a that's a good and easy way, like Larson was mentioning, to put people on their back foot or like, this was a thing that I thought was just straightforward and to be completely shocked by the way the conversation goes. Because using language that's been, in some cases, either redefined or applied, as you'd mentioned uh, in like a moral setting. And if we would claim to be moral people, then that might, if you're not prepared for it, again, throw you on your back foot. Um, but language is so much about recognizing reality. And that's why language, uh, like Stephen had mentioned as well, um, ends up coming into uh, all sorts of forms of media. I mean, like media is in its own way language. Uh, and so that's something that we'll have to deal with also. Yeah. And, and all of that goes back to, and this, I mean, from what Larson was saying, as far as the doctor not being able to know that the notion of not being able to know reality is that's postmodernism um, in a nutshell. And, um, and, and the language that language is not, it's not a descriptor of reality, um, but it is only a perception right? It's only a personal perception. That's where this whole notion of your truth, my truth comes from, is that that language can't describe real things. It can only describe your perception of what is out there, whatever that is. So, um, and so and so it's more about that. Your language tells me more about you than anything out there in the real world. Ben? Uh, postmodernism uh, had a lot of links with architecture at the beginning of its uh, foundation in the 70s. And so it's like, it had the idea from the beginning of like art and like, so now let's use language more like an art instead of a science and let's read literature this way too. And now we can, we can kind of, in a sense, it's like, Oh, it opens so many more possibilities. Like your reading of, you know, Charles Dickens becomes way more, you know, you have way more avenues to go down and think through and everything. And, and, the the reader response theory of of of, uh, of hermeneutics and and all of that. Um, one thing I was going to say about the uh, Larson said about you know how the the sex assigned at birth, the sex assigned at birth language that's used. Um, I wanted to read a, a comment by a lady that was responding to the Genesis two argument that. Uh, or Genesis 1, 26, God made male and female at the beginning. Well, this is what she says. She says, while this statement is true for the initial two, hum two, two humans God created, I don't believe his intention was that there would always only be two sexes in the world. And then she goes on to talk about intersex as the third sex, as proof that God created more than two sexes. And she says this, Therefore, we know we cannot conclude there are only two types of sex within God's creation, man and woman, because to say that would deny the existence of all intersexed individuals. What we can say is that the first two humans created, Adam and Eve, appear to be male and female. And so it's like, OK, here's the Bible. This lady says she believes the Bible. The Bible says they are male and female. 
she's not even willing to use that language anymore. She she is saying, oh, Adam and Eve only appeared to be uh, male and female. It's language. Language yeah. is a kind of a form of resistance against right. uh, parts of reality you don't like, you know. And and the the interesting part there for somebody who says they believe the Bible, um, you know, to to use that appear language appear to whom, the Holy Spirit, um, you know, I mean, what and, and does the Holy Spirit not have access to actual truth? And and of course, that's where postmodernism will eventually, if you take it to its logical, as much as there can be logic to its logical conclusions, it leaves you with with nothing, with uh, no foundations, and that really is that's where we are right now, right? We're in the the uh, very late stages of the consequences of philosophies that were um, begun, you know, at, at least a generation ago. And I think if we trace them back even farther back than that, um, I will say that some of that's a response to modernism, which is probably an overreaction in the other direction that we can know with certainty all things. And here is saying, no, I don't think we can be certain about all those things. And eventually that led to we can be certain about nothing. So yeah. you have you have these sort of two uh, extremes. We can know with certainty everything. And then the, uh, the response to that is we can know with certainty nothing. Uh, and, and the truth is is um, maybe in the middle, maybe more towards one of those than the other. But the bottom line is there are certainties uh, and there are uncertainties. And so we, we admit both of those things. But one more element here before we move on, and, and let me just go ahead and say this is going to be a lot longer show uh, than maybe the uh, AREs usually are on Tuesday night. We're trying to cover several elements here. But another element here that I want to um, to include, incidentally, if if you need to tune out at some point this evening, all of this will be on the podcast. Be sure to find us out uh, there and, and listen to the whole thing if you'd like later. But the notion that progress, that the progress of society always leads to better moral outcomes. And this goes along with a lot of these things that, that we've um, already talked about. Um, but as you, as you look at that notion, we all kind of fall into that a little bit sometimes because we talk about things in the past and we talk about them as if that it is the progression of time that has moved us morally past these bad old ideas, right? So the people in the past were, were morally um, inferior to us because they were more primitive than us. And so we've progressed to a point where we don't think like those people used to think. Now, obviously, if you're a Darwinian, I understand absolutely why you would think that. But if you're a Bible believer, understand Adam is created with the same uh, mental capacity, at least as you and I, maybe with better mental capacity um, uh, since we've got the fall and we've got so many, you know, obviously he's created with better physical capacity and I think would have been with even better mental capacity. And so to look back at the Bible and think, oh, they just believe those things because they live back there in the time where people just didn't have fully developed brains. Um, or even to think about that as if we started out as cavemen and then somewhere along the way, we've developed more and more of a sense of what's moral and what's not moral. And all along the way, we're, we're getting to a better and better place. And of course, that's part of modernity. 
You know, modernity was the notion that somewhere along the way, that that's where we were late 1800s. We were really closing in on what, you know, peak evolution. And then World War I and World War II happened and smashed all of that. All the old gods are dead, uh, Nietzsche would say. And so we landed in a place where, um, where we knew that wasn't true or at least weren't as certain that it was true as we used to be. And so we went from modernism, where we were, we were getting closer and closer to all the answers, to postmodernism, there are no answers. And now we're kind of in a terrible mixture of the two. It's almost like we've got the worst elements of both worlds. Mm-hmm. We've taken the worst of modernism, where we're so certain about things, and the worst about postmodernism, uh, where at the same time we're preaching you can be certain about nothing. And as Christians, we need to understand you know, if, if you're a Christian, if you're a Bible believer, understand the truth is always in the past. We're not waiting on the truth to be revealed. We're not going to we're not going to figure out this in the future somehow that progress is going to lead us to the answer. For us, the answer is always backwards. And so we need to not talk like like the wrong answers are in the past and the right answers are in the future. It's exactly the opposite. Larson. Well, if anybody else has something to say, now would be. Well, let let me just say this. So it it, we kind of started off this section saying it's just been so fast. But I really think that in our culture, we have been not only laying the groundwork, but actively participating in the kind of thinking that makes this possible for a long time. Right. So when I talk about separating um, who we are from our mental processes and our physical being, Right. Think about no fault divorce. I think basically that's what's at work there. Right. No sense of role, no sense of responsibility, but in the sense that, well, this doesn't make me feel good anymore. So I'm out. Right. Well, that's that that is the same kind of thinking as this body doesn't make me feel good. So homosexuality, why does my biological makeup get to determine who I love? Uh, Well, we have some answers to that from the Bible. But basically, that's the same argument as the person who um, is 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 making a transgender argument. Feminism, right? Why does how I was born have any bearing on my role and responsibilities? That is it. I mean, that that's the question right there at its core. And it it is not funny. Uh, if it was less serious, it might be funny. But the same people who are making that argument that my body doesn't matter. What matters is my capacity and my intellect and my psyche and my sense of who I am on in comparing men and women. Right. I should be able to have this role. I should be able to take this responsibility because I am woman. Right. And and my biological limitations or my biological structures don't matter as far as taking leadership. My point is. That's the same argument that the people who are uh, are making the transgender argument. Are. And so there are feminists who understandably are upset with the transgender movement because they say we have worked hard for the gains that we have made. And now you are co-opting that uh, and stepping in and saying, well, now anybody can be a woman. And they think they see that. And I think rightfully so. They see that as a. As, as disingenuous to those women who have, because of their real biology, struggled for and maybe struggled in some ways and then uh, had had maybe more ulterior motives in other ways. But 
in some ways they brought it on themselves. And and I don't mean that to to say people should suffer or something like that. But um there there is a sense in which they they wanted to stop the revolution with them. And that's not how revolutions work. They just keep rolling on until we undermine the foundations of the revolution itself. And we have to accept that our biology and our bodies given to us by God do matter. And if they don't matter in one category, they don't matter in another category either. And so uh, it is it's kind of laughable in some ways about the contention between radical feminists and transgender ideologists that we see in the news all the time. But I think the, the feminists recognize, wow, this undermines a lot of what we were trying to work for. It's like, yes, but you you laid the groundwork for that as well. So anyway. Right. So it's it's it was an effort to raise women to um, equality up to and including physical equality with men. Yeah. Um, and and so you, you have, you know, Title Nine, you know, sports and so forth and, and to bring women up and and to have them have equal positioning uh, in in sports and so forth. And then now the transgender ideologies come along. And now that men can be women, men are co-opting and yeah. taking over. And what, what you really have is, and this brings us into kind of our next topic, you have the exposure of what God created coming to bear yet again. You know, that, that what, you've, what you've had said all along is there's no differences between men and women. There's no differences between men and women. Th that's been part of the feminist, the, the later, some of the later elements of the feminist movement. And then now, um, if that's true, then what, what difference does it make for a man to move over to being a woman and to now compete with the women if there are no differences? But of course, there very obviously are. Mm -hmm. And where do those differences come from? And that is the, the question. There's certainly a reality. And even people who don't believe in God are able to look and know that that's a reality. But it isn't just a reality that's happenstance through Darwinianism uh, or what have you, but it is a created element. We've already talked about that a little bit, that God created man and woman. Um, the um, Ben mentioned that as he was talking about a comment on that uh, Genesis chapter one element. Um, but what about some of the other elements that go along with that? Not only, as Larson put it, is it in every organ, or as he's quoting there, in every organ of our bodies that are gendered, we might say, male or female, um, every cell of our bodies. And that does point back to that created order. But really, as we get into this conversation, it's more about how that plays out in a societal way right? Gender norms, as we would say. Do we find those in scripture and how are they discussed like that? What about pronouns, things of that nature? How does the Bible uh, address those things and, and God's created order? How does it come into play there? So, Go ahead, Larson. Yeah. So first of all, I would say that there are some things that are maybe what we would think of as culturally assigned when we think about being male or being female, right? So uh, I have three boys. We're about to have a little girl, and her room is super pink right now, right? Uh, and that is culturally assigned to some extent. And yet, I, I think that even the Bible recognizes that there are some things that may be culturally apparent that it is perfectly appropriate, good, and right for Christians to go along with if we recognize that these are boundaries 
that um that 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 are set up by the culture for for what men's roles are and what women's women's roles are as long as we're not talking about involving people in some kind of immorality or something like that but there are some things that ought to characterize males and females from God's perspective there are biological distinctions that do matter. So I was in graduate school a few years ago and my wife had just had our, our first boys, our twin boys. And I was talking about some of the difficulties that Lydia was having. And my advisor who was quite progressive said, yeah, this is a place where the biological distinctions really do matter. Right. And so here's somebody who's saying in, in almost every facet of life, right. That those distinctions don't matter. And yet there are places where they really do matter. And the Bible recognizes that. When the Bible talks about God, most often it talks about him as a father. And it talks about him uh, in, in acting in fatherly ways. And it calls on men to act in manly ways. And we can look at some of those passages. But there are also roles that women are called to, to fill. So let me, let me just say this, and then I'll let Ben make a comment. My Much of masculinity and femininity is about roles given because of how we were born and not because we feel like doing this, right? So whether that's leadership or submission or sacrifice or love or whatever it is, those things we don't get to, from a biblical perspective, we don't get to just opt out of because we didn't want those. It comes with, it, it, is, it is part and parcel of being men or women created in God's image and certainly being men or women who are redeemed in Christ. That's just part of what it means to be a man or be a woman. And so we need to embrace and celebrate the differences and embrace and celebrate how those correspond together in order to help us function together as husbands, as wives, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as parents and, and all sorts of ways. Um, I was going to jump into Genesis 1 for a little bit. Yeah. In Genesis 1, verse 26, you know, this is usually like the uh, the go-to passage for talking about gender and, and uh, gender roles and those kind of things, That the foundational passage. Uh, the very first chapter of the Bible, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, what's interesting about this is that, okay, humans are not talked about at all in Genesis 1 until this moment, verse 26. He says, let us make man, and that's the word Adam. So let's make Adam in our image. Then the very next sentence says, and let them so there's, it's not just one Adam, it's, it's a group Adam. Then verse 27, it kind of like narrows it down into distinctions more. So God created Adam, man, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. There's the individual level. Then all of a sudden, he brings up male and female. Male and female, he created them. Oh, so what you see right there is that you kind of see this beginning with Adam. So Adam is the, the you know, fundamental human, you know. And then from that, it further narrows into male and female. 
And so it's like Adam is the general category and then male and female is the more specific categories of what it means to be human. And that's the very first language that is used for humans. That's the very first uh, vocabulary that's used uh, to describe humans in, in the Bible. Um, there's another thing about in the Bible I was gonna I was gonna talk about in Genesis chapter three. In Genesis chapter three, um, whenever it's talking about the curse. So Eve, you know, eats the of the tree that she's not supposed to, and then God starts uh cursing the serpent and then the woman and then the man. Well, in verse 16, it says, To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. If you just ask the question, okay, what is a woman according to this verse? Well, most basically, a woman is a human who is capable of, or at least has the bodily features that are capable of childbearing and capable of feeling the pain that goes along with all the childbearing features. And so at the very beginning of Genesis, you have, it's defining gender, it's defining sex and gender in subtle ways. Um, you don't have a full exhaustive explanation of what gender is because back then they're writing at a time where sex and gender and male and female were taken for granted. There's two of them and we all know what they are. The Bible gives us some extra information on how to think about that. But as, but as far as uh, we can just, we can see the, the traces of what is a male? What is a female? And if we just ask those basic questions, you come back and read the Bible all the way through, and there's only two of them. There's only two sexes. There's only two genders everywhere, even animals, the way it talks about animals, male and female. Um, yeah. Now, there's some nuance that could be said about that later, but but I just wanted to point those out from the very beginning. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I think, is a good where we need to keep the foundation uh, anytime we're talking about it biblically. And I think it's important to understand that that those uh, created distinctions, they do play out. They play out in society. Um, you know, th there's there's been several studies of various sorts that have noticed distinctions. And it is it is striking the um, even when somebody does that from a completely secular perspective, um, they're just noticing that more men go into hard sciences uh, than women. And, and there's a, an, an appalled reaction to that. How dare you notice that sort of thing? And it just is. Um, and, and so one of the things that I think we see from scripture is that um, these distinctions were recognized and relied upon by God when he communicated with his people, for instance. So uh, in Deuteronomy 22 and verse four, one of the things that comes up in these kind of conversations about uh, transgender and so forth. Uh, Deuteronomy 22 and verse four says, you shall not see, uh, excuse me, verse five, a woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing.
or whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. So that's the, the New American Standard version there. And and so some people might look at that and, and use that to say, hey, we shouldn't have cross dressers. And uh, and and that really isn't what I'm trying to do with that, that verse at this moment uh, is have a conversation about tra- cross dressers. What I'm trying to suggest is that God was able to communicate in terms assuming gender norms and give commands on the basis of the acceptance of the understanding on the other end of those gender norms. He could say, don't dress like a woman and expect the people to know what he meant. And in fact, that could change over time and they would be able to change with that because the generic command is given, don't dress like a woman. And the understanding is that men and women would dress differently by and large throughout time. And in fact, I would say, I would say that this is probably by all available data at a time when men and women were dressing more like each other than they are today, less distinction among their clothing. And yet there was enough distinction that God could say, don't, don't mix these two. And so the fact that God could communicate like that and did um, shows a recognition of gender norms in a society into which he's communicating what his will is. Uh, separate and apart from the question of how we apply that today, I'm just talking about the language that God uses. And he would continue to use that language, making assumptions about who women are and how they present themselves in society and who men are and how they present themselves in society. I would Which, additionally say, go ahead, David. Oh yeah. I was thinking that you, you still see it today, even with uh, people who would, you know, even maybe claim to be uh, true believers in the ideology or anything is if I say that, uh, you know, I was born such a gender and now I've transitioned to another gender. What's one of the first things that happens is a change of clothes. And it's like, well, how are you defining, like, why are you choosing those clothes? You say, like, if you're a man changing to a woman, uh, you put on a dress. It's like, well, I thought we were at the point where, as you'd mentioned earlier, that men and women are all the same. There are, are no differences. Everybody knows it, even if not everybody's willing to admit it. Yeah. So like when you see some of the most uh, outrageous versions of this on TikTok, right, with uh, or on uh, whatever it might be, um, the people who are transitioning, mostly I see it from people who are transitioning uh, from male to a female persona. And what happens is that it's almost a parody of what it means to be a woman, right? Mm-hmm. They have just these accentuated uh, motion, uh, movements. Their language is so affected. Um, their their the makeup that they choose is so um, intended to just kind of over exaggerate. It, it's it it almost looks like somebody pretending to be a woman. Right. And and so what it is. (laughs) Yes. Right. Yes. And so but that's and so that's what I it is not just that they are trying to wipe away maybe these gender stereotypes. It actually reinforces them even stronger in certain ways. They're embracing them. And now maybe there are some people who are out there saying, no, we don't need to recognize or honor that at all. So be it. But I also think like for parents, this is really important because, yes, there are things that are typically boyish and typically girlish. And I think we should encourage that for our boys and for our girls. But just because 
a little girl likes to play in the mud or because a boy likes to maybe play kitchen does not mean now that they have some kind of gendered crisis. And I really think so. This is this is one of the somebody says, well, why does it matter? Well, what happens is because in the cultural air right now is this concept of I am how I feel. And so I think there are parents who are just kind of on edge and they see their child express some kind of gender nonconforming action, right? And they say, oh, well, he must be gender dysphoric and push them way down a road that maybe was fleeting and maybe had no bearing on their identity at all, but they're impressionable children. And so that takes them a long way down the road. And so I think we ought to be careful about how firmly some of these these uh, stereotypes we place on children who are five years old and we expect them. And even if they say, you know, I, I feel like a boy or I feel like a girl and they're not. It's like, yeah, kids say things that they don't mean. Right. And or that that they don't understand what that means. Um, and, you know, you, you hear uh, you hear stories about little children, uh, little boys. And uh, they say, uh, Mommy, I want to marry you when I grow up. You know, and maybe you've heard. It's like, well, why, why is that? Well, it's because that's the only woman they know. And that's, that's the only person who's shown them love and affection. And they think of marriage as a partnership between somebody they love. And they say, Mommy, I'm going to marry you. And no, I'm already married. Thank you. You know, and, and but they will find somebody one day. But you, we don't take that and say, well, I guess I guess that's what we do now. Right. Because it would just be absolutely it would be ludicrous. And so. I don't know. I think that's where thinking about some of these gendered stereotypes and being careful with that um, is good. And, and and we live in a culture that kind of hypersexualizes children anyway, right? Like hypersexualizes girls, especially from a very early age. And you throw that into the mix, gender confusion. And what you have is you have gender confused little people um, who grow up into gender confused adults. And we have to be very careful about that as Christians, not just kind of following along with the world in how, like what we let our daughters and our sons do and participate in. Um, so anyway. Yeah. And, and let me just add a couple of things as you were talking about people overreacting and thinking, Oh, my kid is transgender. I think another way that you can overreact is, is when that happens is, is be so afraid of the ideology that you're scared when your little girl climbs a tree. Yeah. Or you're scared when your little boy, uh, uh, you know, goes in and and likes the the little girl's kitchen at the house that you're visiting. Yeah. You know, the, the, these things are not, um, you know, don't be terrified of those things. And just like you said, when, when a little boy says, I want to marry you, mommy, our, our little boy told his uh, big sister he wanted to marry her. And uh, and she said, no, you can't do that. And her boyfriend was standing right there and he said, well, then I'll marry him. <laughs> and you know, it's just going around the room, you know, because yeah. you know the, the topic was on the table. And so we, we laugh at that and, th and there's nothing serious about that. But I do. I, I will say this along those lines, that in that sort of spectrum of not overreacting in either direction, understand that as your children get older and especially as they grow into the teen years, there needs to be serious conversations about these things. And uh, and we do need to be careful that we don't let the jokes become reality. That's certainly one of the ways that all of this has been normalized is by putting it into sitcoms and making it part uh, plots of those uh, kind of television shows and movies and so forth. And it normalizes the language of it 
And we might say, well, I'm just joking about those things. I'll tell you, you know, um, at some of the events where young people are, especially camps where I've stayed in bunk houses and so forth, I used to not think anything of boys, you know, you know, maybe a boy um, um, acting effeminate on purpose in order to make a joke and maybe doing that towards acting effeminate towards another boy. I, I, I caution against that now. And I'm, I don't come down like a hammer on it. But if but if I see that, I say, hey. It's, it's not the environment for that kind of joking now, um, because that's a real thing. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there may be a boy in that room for whom that's a real thing. And so we've got to be a lot more careful, I think, about just simply brushing that off as something just only on the very extremes of society. It's not. It's it's right in among us. And, and so we want to be maybe a little bit more cautious about that, um, um, talking with our, our children and so forth. Um, coming back, though. Uh, to this notion of the the gender norms and as those are presented in scripture. First of all, let me just highlight that point. God recognizes and communicates based on gender norms, based on the understood exception. That is what trans people by and large are doing. They are changing themselves and presenting themselves with the gender norms of society assuming that everybody knows what they're communicating. When a guy wants to be a girl, he dresses up like he knows everybody expects a girl to dress up. And that's what we're saying is that it's, it's really, it's ironic because the very thing that they're saying they don't believe in is the thing that they are relying on in order to present their ideology. Um, But some other elements here, God talks about characteristics in gendered form. Um, He talks about um, himself even acting like a mother. And that's, uh, you know, that's in fact, one of the things that people will point to and they'll say here, look, God talks about himself being like a nursing mother. And we'll say a couple of things about that at the outset before I make some other points. First of all, it's always when God is referred to with feminine characteristics, motherly usually characteristics it's always given in the simile form like or as but he is the father right so the male characteristics are given as immutable characteristics but the female characteristics are he is acting with this characteristic and so i do think that's an important distinction as we're considering language and so forth and god is always very consistently referred to with the the male pronouns verbs etc that that would go along with his personality and so the language is not inconsistent it doesn't go back and forth and it's not neuter language that refers to god and that would even apply incidentally to the holy spirit it's one of the things that we say sometimes about the holy spirit he's given that personal pronoun it's not called it for instance so that's one thing that we note and and that brings me to this next point as god does use that gendered language with regards to characteristic going so far in the case of first corinthians 16 and verse 13 where paul says act like men right so what does he mean by that well in fact most translations have translated that be brave and i think that's not a terrible translation except i think that we're losing that gendered connection there the idea is that bravery is a masculine characteristic Now, somebody might get offended and say, so you're saying women can't be brave. Of course, I'm not saying that women can't be brave. Paul's commanding them to. 
right? Exactly. Like he's telling the whole congregation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think they're yeah. among the ones who are being told to, you know, yes, be strong, right? Act like yeah. men. But the idea, the idea would, would bear itself out, for instance, in, uh, in a scene maybe with a family. And and they come they come face to face maybe with some threat of violence. Who stands out front? I'm gonna tell you in every culture on earth, if a man pulls his wife in front of him, that man is useless. Right? We all would agree with that. I think even the people in this debate would say, yes, that man is a coward and useless. And we'd say he's not acting like a man. Nobody expects the woman to step up front. Now, at the same time, I think we all would expect women who came without the husband to stand in front of her children in very brave ways and to stand up strongly and fiercely uh, protect her children. And so it's not that a woman can't have this characteristic, but that a man is supposed to have this uh, in a leading way. Yeah. I also think about those characteristics. They're sort of sliding scales. The most obvious distinction between men and women is, is maybe physical strength, right? That, uh, you know, all the studies we do, uh, you know, you have men are stronger than women. And then inevitably somebody's going to come along and say, well, I know this woman who could bench press more than you. Fine. Fair enough. But what we're saying is it's, it's a sliding scale. My, my, the sliding scale for me may slide this way, and there may be some women that slide this way. But when we're taking the whole, men are going to be represented by greater physical strength, bone density, all sorts of things, weight, height. All of those elements are going to fall over here into men categories, whereas women are going to have these physical characteristics. And, uh, and so if a man slides this way a little bit and he's not as strong, that doesn't make him not a man, but, it, but that one man or even a large group of men having lower elements of that doesn't mean that by and large men don't inhabit these characteristics. They still are representative of, of these characteristics. And so it is valid. It is creational to say men carry the weight and ought yep. to carry the weight. God created them. And in, in fact, sometimes in literal ways to carry the weight. And, and then women um, here is, is their role and here are their characteristics. Tenderness might be one of those. Does that mean a man shouldn't be tender? Well, that's why God says like a nursing mother that he's saying, I'm coming to you with a feminine quality. So there are feminine qualities that I think that we need, we, all of us, men and women need to uh, exemplify, but we understand women are going to more naturally have that characteristic. Men are going to more naturally have this characteristic. And David, we were talking about this the other day from the standpoint of responsibilities. Um, and, and David was saying that um, from a leadership perspective, he doesn't feel like a natural leader, but the role is given to him. I would say that while that's probably true, and I understand that may be true for David, that he doesn't feel like the natural leader. I still feel as a man, David is going to have automatically that he is going to, he's part of at least a group of people who have more inherently qualities that make it appropriate for them to live out this role. What I think we have to get away from is the notion that God made men and women exactly the same and I think for Bible believers that God made women exactly men and women exactly the same and just 
randomly doled out the responsibilities yeah. and said, there's no difference between men and women, but, but I want men to lead. No, right. I think what he's saying is I want men to do the thing they're created to do. And, mm-hmm. and while that, you may not be the prime example of that, you're still a man. Uh, David, go ahead. Right. And uh, so when Ben had started us off here in Genesis one, I think then it goes then to another um, level where we've seen how the father speaks of the standard language and the roles that typically get assigned with that. And then the inherent roles that are also along with that. And I think Jesus himself also demonstrates this. Uh, Hebrews 10 says, you know, a body you have prepared for me, O God, to do your will. Now, what is my, what is God's will for me as a man? And scripture is explicit on those things, just as much as it is for a woman, just as much as it is for the son as a distinct and unique individual in that, his role in Hebrews 10 was to fulfill the role of sacrifice. And then it says also in Galatians chapter 4 that <clears throat> at the right time, Jesus was sent to the earth, born of a woman, born under the law. And on it goes to list some things about him where now he has been placed in from birth certain responsibilities. And so for us, not born under the law, that's not something that was expected of me, but for him, he had certain expectations that you see him fulfill as far as even, you know, something you would think would be beneath him is uh, obedience to the law. Like he's the, he is the lawgiver. He is God's word himself. Why would he have to do this? But he had been placed in a body to do those things. And I think that could be said of us as well as that. So <clears throat> we have been placed in these respective bodies. And while my role is not to be, uh, as Ben had mentioned, what's, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the one who brings birth or brings life into the world, I do have other roles uh, because of the body that I have been given by God. Uh, and I think that's informative for us too, that both men and women can use Jesus as an example of look at how God has placed us with responsibilities that we can act on. Yeah, and that, that gets into uh, the whole incarnational theology. Like that's the fundamental, that's a fundamental Christian doctrine going all the way back as far as history records in in Christian history and uh, you know, Jesus taking on flesh, not just appearing like flesh, not just looking like a person, but he became a person. He became a real human being, God and man joining together, embodied, you know, and uh, embodiment um incarnation that's it it runs its threads run all over the place and in, in scripture yeah. and who we are as humans and yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead, ahead larson well just one thing really quickly so i i think that idea of jesus having a body is important because it reminds us that so i think even well-meaning folks kind of talk about us as having a spirit like we're a body. Well, actually, so I, even in good Bible class material that I've seen used, right? We are a soul or we are a spirit and we just have a body. Like almost that, like this is just a suitcase for who we really are. And I don't think that's the way the Bible presents it, right? Um, so I, in fact, in some material that is widely distributed among brethren, uh, we are compared to like a computer with a processor on the inside. And who we really are is the processor and our body is just is just the shell and that's not how the bible presents us so i love first thessalonians 5 and verse 23 that talks about us being preserved body soul and spirit and there are so many times especially in the psalms 
where David will say something like, my soul cries out to you, my body longs for you, or something like that. Some correspondence between what he's feeling on the inside and an actual physical uh, manifestation of that. You think about what the, the New Testament says about what God wants from us. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20, where he says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Romans 12 and verse 1, present your bodies as living sacrifices. When we talk about who we are as a person, the world that we live in and our bodies are the handiwork of a loving God, right? It is not, as Darwin said, that we are just the end result of a long process of accidents, but rather we were designed for a specific purpose. We're not just containers. We're not just people with a body. We are body and soul and spirit built with purpose and built by design. Now, why is that important? Well, it is important because when my feelings don't align with my body, I can't just necessarily conclude, well, my feelings have precedence there. My body has at least as much say in that as my feelings do. And there is more that we can say about that. But just when we talk about the created order, what does it mean for somebody to be a person? Well, it means that they are body and soul and spirit. And God is concerned about all of those aspects and not just our internal soulish part. Our bodies are going to be raised. Uh, This body is frail, but it's going to be raised to immortality. Uh, And it's not just discarded and left behind and forgotten. It matters and it means something. Speaking of that incarnation, especially of Christ, if you take the, the one story of we have of Jesus's adolescence at 12 years old, uh, and he has uh, where he's in the temple and his, his uh, parents find him. And it says after that story, you know, we focus on that interaction where he where he responds must be about my father's business. But after that, it says that he went on submitting to his parents. You know, I've told teenagers before that um, if there was ever a case for somebody who could say he knew more than his parents, it would be this particular instance. Uh, and yet he went on submitting to his parents. And so what we see there is is Jesus being constrained by the incarnation. In other words, he's given responsibility. He's born into responsibilities. These are the parents he is given at birth. And he has creational responsibilities to those parents that even as the son of God, he still has to go and submit uh, to those parents. So, th- you know, what people will say uh, in in the marriage relationship, for instance, you know, the, why should she have to submit to him? What if what if maybe she um, she um, feels like she's a stronger leader or whatever? Um, you're constrained by the incarnation. And and certainly if Jesus, if the, if God could be constrained by the flesh, uh, to submit to the role of the flesh that he was incarnated into, then who am I uh, to be talking about, you know, I don't have to be constrained by what I've been born into and I can choose not to follow those roles and so forth. Um, so I, th- I think that's a very powerful uh, element there is understanding that that when God creates us, he does create us with purpose, um, physically, um, emotionally, all of those elements uh, are part of that. Um, along these lines, Ben, um, as we try to bring the Bible language, and, and especially as the world, maybe some of the proponents of transgender ideology, they do try to um, maybe harness the Bible 
bring it along and use it in some ways. Um, and of course, it makes for some very bad, what we might call eisegesis, uh, some very bad interpretation. But um, what's, what are some of the problems that we see as people are, are trying to make that connection? Well, um, from some of my research and, you know, trying to present their arguments as, as fair as possible, uh, there's a couple of themes that I've, I've seen that have kind of cropped up. Uh, one is they appeal to the concept of the gender spectrum, the gender spectrum. Like, I mean, you've been talking about it. Like, you know, that where's that moment that meets masculine crosses over to feminine, you know, uh, it's, you can't totally, you know, define it like black and white terms always. And so they'll appeal to that and say, well, um, you know, a child can be born within a gender spectrum. So therefore, uh, males over here, females over here, they can be anywhere in between. And it's kind of like there's all these different categories. That's, you know, biblical. That's what they would say. Um, the, there have been some who have even, you know, some Bible believers who have described it as courageous, you know, to come out and live as transgender. So they'd see it as a virtue, you know. Uh, you are being uh, courageous. You are doing what First Corinthians 16 says, be be like men, be brave like men. Um, another thing that I've noticed is that um, the importance of feelings, the importance of mo emotion, um, you know, what you feel becomes the priority. And uh, what you feel in this category is what God wants you to do. Um, and of course, most of them would say there's limits to that. You know, you can't do everything you feel like. No one would admit that. But for some reason, with this concept, feeling becomes uh, foundational. Um, I said that it's kind of like they view it as, as when you are living your true self, as, as language they often use. It's virtuous. You are being authentic. You are being true to yourself. You're not being fake and, and so on. You know, uh, you know, telling the truth. Um, don't deceive yourself. Don't put on a show. Those type of things, they would appeal to all those type of, uh, you know, characteristics that, in a sense, we're supposed to be like and we're supposed to nurture. Um but they apply it specifically with this. Um, I'm looking at some notes I had down about the different arguments. Um, one is the Bible does not say transgenderism is wrong. So therefore, you know, why is it wrong? You know, kind of a built to silence kind of thing. Uh, a big one is using eunuchs, eunuchs in the Bible as kind of a third sex. And the, the argument kind of goes like, well, since eunuchs uh, could be saved and eunuchs could be in Israel, they just couldn't go to the temple and they had some restrictions, all that kind of stuff. Well, they were a third sex. So therefore that proves that, you know, uh, what we do is with transgenderism today is totally okay. Cause it's just like, it's basically like eunuchs back then. Um, and then of course the appeal to, well, we need to love them, love, love, 
we need to love transgender people and that means accept transgenderism you know as a as a concept and approve of what they're doing and then i think what we've kind of been uh, larson's been talking about a lot is the the idea of being spiritual being spiritual has nothing to do with our bodies um it is only the mind it is only um the inside part of us and I'd like to respond to that one specifically um, to show 1 Corinthians 10, just to talk about the language of spiritual. In 1 Corinthians 10, the Bible uses the word spiritual, but it's not talking about non-physical. So look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse starting verse 1, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized in Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. Well, we understand that it's talking about manna on one level. So there's spiritual food. That's not necessarily you know, the opposite of physical. Physical food can be spiritual, according to this text right here. So... Um, and then he also uses spirit, the spiritual rock of Christ um, and the, the spiritual drink. Well, they drank literal water in the, in the desert. And there was, you know, deeper levels and underlining uh, realities going on there. But uh, it was no less spiritual just because it's physical. And so I think with that, the Bible we need to understand that the Bible does not use the word spiritual mutually exclusive from physical as if spiritual is over here and physical is over here. When it's talking about spiritual, usually what it's referring to is it's connecting it to the spirit in some way and the spirit. Is yeah. The and, spirit. and to things that are eternal. Yes. You yes. know? Um, and so maybe even in some ways more concrete things, uh, than than merely physical. Well, I, you know, I, I, and, and along those lines and in, in answering those sorts of things, I mean, there's w one of the things about the Bible. It's sort of like trying to change, take the transgender ideology into other parts of the world. Like so you go down and you take this into a Spanish speaking country. It is near impossible to communicate without gendered language because everything has a gender in that language. And so um, you, I mean, you just end up with nonsense. The Bible, as you go through the whole Bible, it's using gendered language. So think about this, this situation with the eunuch. Oh, see the eunuch, he's, he's uh, non-gendered. No, he, he <laughs> is actually still gendered and is still referred to in the masculine gendered with agreeing masculine verbs because the Greek language as well use gen uses gendered language. And so uh, all the words, or at least so many of the words have genders and they have agreements and so forth. And so the eunuch is not left genderless, right? He is left uh, without an element uh, of his gender, we might say, but he still remains that gender. And the Bible still assumes him as gender. And again, I don't think that's happenstance. One of the one of the verses uh, that I think is so striking about the created elements here in um, Ephesians chapter three and in verse um, 
14, Ephesians 3 and verse 14, it says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Um, the, the word, the Greek word for father is uh, patera. The Greek word for family is patria. And I think what, what Paul is saying in a very literal way, the word family, the name family comes down from the name father. And, and these two are not, it's not just, see, this goes back to the language thing. It's not just that we happen to come up with names to describe these things, but that from the very beginning, God was connecting things. And, and so we talk about the patriarchy. I think Ephesians chapter three and verse 14 and 15 says, yeah, patriarchy is what it's supposed to be. They're supposed to be a father and families come from the father. And we don't just get to choose how language gets used and throw it around and, and decide along the way. And, oh, we don't use it that way anymore. God's saying it came from me. I invented it. Yeah. I created it. And so these notions of male, female, these notions of men, women, family, all of those things, they're not up for us to just decide how to use that terminology any way we please. Um, of course we can, uh, but we are, we can't, we can't do that and be faithful to God. Um, yeah. And, and so that's, it, it is, it is part of what God has put in place. Larson, do you have something to add there? Well, not to that in particular, but as we think about transgender ideology in line with the Bible, I think uh, one of the things that Ben mentioned is that, a lot of times the feelings are where the emphasis is. And I've already, I've, I think I've made the point as much as I can that our bodies do matter, but also that our feelings are never determinative when it comes to what's right and wrong. Um, that our feelings in some ways are irrelevant to what truth is. And we see that all through the scriptures. Um, and I just want to think about this from a practical level. You know, here is a young lady who believes she is grossly overweight, but she's not. And what would we say about that? We would say that that is a mental process that's a problem, that her her thinking, there that is a dysphoria, right? That's a disconnection between her thinking and between her body. And yet we would treat that in a very different way. We wouldn't all of a sudden say, well, then let's let's reduce your weight somehow in order to make that match. And so I just want to think about that, that our feelings and our bodies not matching, our, our feelings are not reliable. And the thing that is more unchangeable than our feelings, which are fleeting, and gender ideologists would even say that they're fleeting. The thing that's more unchangeable is our body. So let me think about that for just a second, that when we look at, we think that our feelings determine who we are, but that is only true so far, right? That's only true within a particular interpretive grid. And let me explain what I mean by that. So Tim Keller uses this illustration and he says, uh, and I'm just going to read a little bit here. He says, imagine that an Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain in 800 AD has two very strong inner impulses and feelings. One is aggression. He loves to smash and kill people when they show him disrespect. Living in a shame honor culture with its warrior ethic, he will identify with that feeling. He will say to himself, that's me. That's who I am. I will express that. His other feeling is he senses, in this case, same-sex attraction. To that, he will say, that's not me. I will control and suppress that impulse. All right, because of the culture in which he lives, he has these two impulses. 
And one of those impulses he can act on because his culture values that. And the other one, he says, no, I really need to rein that in. Now, he gives the same example, but he says, let's take a person in 2022 walking down a street in Manhattan, right? They have those same impulses. I want to smash and kill people. Or I have same-sex attraction. Well, which one's really who he is? Well, the smash and kill people, he would say, oh, I got to rein that in. I don't want to be that person. But the same-sex attraction, he is encouraged by our culture to act upon. So he draws this conclusion. He says, we do not get our identity simply from within. Rather, we receive some interpretive moral grid, lay it down over our various feelings and impulses, and sift them through it. This grid helps us decide what feelings are me and should be expressed and which are not and should not be expressed. And I think that's a very helpful way of thinking. Yes, so it will feel like, I think, that maybe we're kind of beating up on people who, who have these particular impulses. Everyone has impulses that have to be reined in. Everyone has feelings that are not in line with who God wants us to be. And what we must do is lay down God's interpretive grid over the feelings that we have and determine which one we want to be, right? We want to be the person who matches that. So all through the scriptures, Jesus says things like repent, metanoia, change how you're thinking and believe the gospel. Repent, change your mind. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, the Bible's perspective on any feelings that are out of line with who God made us to be is, you don't get to just follow those feelings. You lay my interpretive grid. You repent. You change your thinking. And to put it more in line with who I've called you to be. And that's true for anybody, whether that's they're struggling with same-sex attraction, whether they're struggling with lust for uh, in a heterosexual way, if they're struggling with transgender identity, we can change our feelings. Now, we may never get rid of all of those impulses, but what God calls us to do is to act different than we feel, to do what he wants us to do in obedience and submission to him. And that's true if my if my passion or my lust is greed or if it's alcohol or whatever it is. Um, and 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 that means that I'm not asking and I'm not asking anybody. But when we're calling people to change their thinking on this, we ought not to be calling people to do any more than what we're already trying to do. And that is lay down the things that don't fit with what God wants us to be. Uh, and I know I, I imagine that if if somebody is listening to this who is struggling with this, you probably only hear what we're saying as as something that is is placing a heavy burden on you. It is a heavy burden, right? It's a heavy burden for everybody. But Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Um, and he can forgive you, and he can help you, and he can. And we'll talk more about that in the evangelism category. But I just want to make sure that we all understand that our feelings are not determinative. God's word is determinative. And so we were talking earlier about do we want to live in a postmodern age or a modern age? We really want to live in a pre-modern age where it was recognized that God was the authority and that everything is subjected to the one who made us and who knows what's best for us. Well, uh, and as we're moving into the last couple of um, uh, talking points that we want to deal with, um, you think about some of those objections that people bring the Bible in. It, it, it just is incongruous. Um, you, 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 you find that the arguments are, are very surface. Um, but uh, one of the um, more biological objections that people will bring to the table is that not everybody neatly falls into 
the categories, the chromosome categories, or the genitalia categories. So that you do have some situations where someone is born and there is some confusion. Uh, maybe there's confusion that even a blood test is not and uh, doesn't entirely clear up. And so you do have situations. Now, let me let me go ahead and at the outset say um, that um, when doctors do research to figure out what's going on, they are trying to figure out which gender they're trying to figure out uh, an absolute truth or an objective truth. Right. They're not just throwing darts at the board. They're, they're doing research to determine what's what here. So there's several categories that those fall into um, and th they either fall into just deformity. You know, there, there's there's a, um, a part that shouldn't be there or a part that should be there that isn't there. And the chromosomes completely, um, you know, bear out whether you're male or female. And so that that one the, where there's uh, um, genitalia or even internal parts that are not there, that's the, no different, I think, than somebody who's born with without a hand or uh, or someone who's born with with uh, maybe uh, spina bifida, where their spine is developed outside of their body. And so there's there's all sorts of um, issues that someone can be born with that just are deformities that are part of being in a broken world. And, and yet, as we say, that chromosomal element is still that every cell still represents as male or female. That brings us to the chromosome difference, which is generally the argument that people go to, that there are some chromosome disorders that actually uh, make it difficult uh, that they might say to determine whether someone is male or female. So there's a few things we might say about that. Um, ben, what, um you probably could tell us about some of the nature of some of those chromosome disorders and then maybe uh, to some degree describe how often they occur in the population. Yeah, um, it's, it's been a while since I've looked at the numbers on that. But um, what was interesting is I found a site from uh, was, I think it was published in like the year 2005 or something. And it was given a list of all these different uh, chromosomal, uh, you know, the type of gender or sex uh, deformity type uh, diseases that usually have something to do with the chromosome. Well, there's different types. So you can have um, a problem with your genitals don't develop the right way or your, your genitals stay inside your body instead of come out of your body. Or uh, you do have genitals, but for some reason, uh, you develop other parts of your body that don't match those genitals. And so there's a whole bunch of different combinations that can happen with that. Um, but what was interesting about that site that I uh, found is written back in like 2005. And it wasn't a conservative site or anything. But the way it talked about everything was everyone is a male who has a Y chromosome, no matter no matter if it's what combination it is. And so it, it, you see that shift, you know, the shift just within the last less than 20 years of this core foundational definition of, of what it means to be human is that, uh, you know, it, it changed that quickly where 
if you were to suggest, you know, well, if you have a Y chromosome, no matter what, you're male. Um, I mean, that that would not go over very well in most public scenarios uh, today. And uh, and that's another thing is that m most of what I saw, what, what I've what I've looked at is um, most of these diseases have some kind of Y chromosome in the in the mixture in the formula and and like i said most scientists assumed they were males until about the last 15 years yeah 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 so you had a baseline and then here's this this um this condition uh that that caused abnormality but it was a male with an abnormality. Yeah, that's how they understood to, it. Yeah. Right, as opposed to a we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think uh, I might just add that in that there there have been instances, and one very famous instance in which uh, a, a doctor, because there were genitalia disformity uh, disformity of some sort, that a doctor did choose a gender that was distinct or different from the chromosomes. And it ended disastrously. They told the parents to raise this child as a girl. And uh, and this was twins. And so they raised one, if I remember correctly, as a boy and then the other as a girl. Changed his name, let, let his hair grow long, you know, encouraged him to play with all the gender stereotypes. In fact, that they they pressed onto this son of theirs and it ended disastrously. It ended with with both of these children committing suicide. Later, uh, the little boy found out, he knew, he knew and he found out um, and, uh, and it was just, you can just imagine um, the, the sort of trauma that that would create. And so there was a situation in which everyone bought in, the doctor bought in, the parents bought in uh, to this notion that you just couldn't tell. And really it didn't matter if you raised them this way, then they would be that way. And you raised them this way, they'd be that way. And it's just not true. Yeah. Um, more studies have been done in other places where uh, people have tried to neutralize the the distinctions between the genders and, and boy, that biology just keeps cropping up. And so um, I, I'll, I'll grant that there are abnormalities, but that's not just true in the chromosomes. That's true yeah. in all sorts of horrible abnormalities that, that cause all sorts of problems. I will say like so many of these other instances, it's such a, a minuscule part of the population. Yes. Yeah. And so what, what's happening is they're, they're taking somebody with a defect and that's what it is. It's a defect. It's not norm. It's not what we would call a healthy body. And they're saying they're using that as a prop to say, well, then because this person has this, condition, this abnormality, I can be whatever I want to be. And I think all throughout history, again, if you were to ask the people with that abnormality, they would say, I don't want this, right? I, I don't want this condition. It's not helpful to me to have this condition. Uh, but people are embracing that as if it's some kind of beautiful thing uh, that they don't fall into a category. And it's not, it's, it's not any more beautiful than any other uh, chromosome defect that that might present itself uh, in in bodies. Uh, David, it's the exception which proves the supposed rule, right? And and what I think is interesting then is like, okay, so if the if the statistics are that this is such a minuscule, uh, you know, uh, deformities or accidents or different things like that, 
you start to see different things like surveys of schools, especially like around the Northwest recently, where one school has uh, 30% of its student body uh, identifies as, you know, non-binary or something along those lines. And then some schools go as high as 70% up in the Northwest. And so it's like, there's some good news, bad news about this in that there's there's good news that we understand the statistics in that it is relatively minuscule. The The good news, if you look at it a certain way, is that it is obviously so much uh, driven by ideology uh, mm -hmm. that that can turn uh, almost as quickly as, you know, we feel like it has come upon us sort of mm -hmm. thing. And so um, just to know that there are a lot of people that are dealing with that and then uh, being told, here's how we can make your life better. And as you mentioned, Stephen, this is actually, it's going to make it worse. One, one thing that I want to help uh, maybe clarify uh, some definitions is that, uh, so the thing with the chromosome issues is an intersex and those type of things. Well, that's a, that's a biological problem. And uh, most people who are like that are not transgender. And so fundamentally, it's a different issue. But yes. what they argue is they argue that the, the intersex phenomenon proves that sex, biological sex is on a spectrum. And if biological sex is on a spectrum, then how much more true it should it be that gender should be on a spectrum, mm -hmm. which is like gender being the expression of sex, you know, and so when you're talking about this stuff and when you're talking about it to people who believe it and, and hold to these convictions, um, it's helpful to remember that distinction and not, not conflate them. Um, uh, just so you know what you're, you know, you know what you're talking about and what you're, what you're not talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Cause intersex is not a third sex, right? right. It is, it is some miss misalignment of the two that are possible in fact i don't think there's any case where somebody is born with both parts operating correctly right no, i mean there's no there's no one that can yeah. produce both the male test male male sex uh stuff and and the female uh, you know you couldn't have and a baby most and, and of the time yeah. as far as i know most of the time when someone has both genitalia both don't work Right. Correct. The way supposed because to. something went wrong. Yeah. Right. And so it's like and, and so um, and on the other side of that, there are intersex people who are saying, stop using us as political pawns. Right. Stop using us as um, as some kind of trump card in your debates. And I think you make a great point that they don't they wish that they could have had them. The, the, they, they mentally know that they are male or female. And they just wish that their body aligned to it appropriately. But I think gender dysphoria and their bodies and all of this, it's a it's a tragic and yet real result of the fall. And I think those people fall into the category of what we would think of as eunuchs, much more so than what we talk about the transgender folks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and the Bible talks about those people. And I love the passages in the book of Isaiah that talk about eunuchs being welcomed in to the family. Um, and yes, it is a horrible and tragic reality um but uh in that case right it it there is hope because of a resurrection body and things like that but a, a, again let's let me reiterate that like you've said before 
the they don't want to be used as political pawns in this. And and I think you make a great point there. Yeah, That's all and, I had to say and, about that. And bringing that, talking about the eunuch being brought in and being brought in as sons, brothers, yeah. you know, they're, they're being brought in as their gendered yeah. element yeah. in the yeah. family, you know. Right. Um, so, yeah. That's a I wanted to make point. a comment real quick about the, the dysphoria. Um, well, there was a sense in which Genesis 3 was the first example of some type of dysphoria going on with the body. Hmm. Because as soon as, you know, Adam ate of the tree uh the fruit of the tree what they feel yeah they felt shame ashamed yeah and afraid yeah so it's like all of a sudden they were comfortable in who they were they fit perfectly in their body being totally naked and 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 they had no self-consciousness in that sense and then yeah. they sin and it's like it it destroys the world and they they it it affects their mind and their body and their body and mind don't completely match up like it used to be used to. Mm -hmm. I think there's a sense in which, I mean, not to downplay uh, those who struggle with gender dysphoria, but I think there is a sense in which uh, most of us have that problem with some kind of detachment from the mind to the body that we wish it was more in line and that we wish it was more, more efficient, you yeah. know, yeah. And one thing I want to think about that, and this is maybe a broader point, is that when somebody says, well, I feel like I'm a woman. Well, how do you know like that that's what you're feeling? Uh, that's just a question that I have more generally. Right. Like if if I was to have some kind of gender dysphoria and feel like I didn't belong in this body, why is the natural conclusion that, well, I must be a woman? Uh, I think that that has to be planted by some kind of outside source initially. Right. For me to think that I feel like a woman. All I know is what it means to feel like a man. And if I didn't feel right, I don't know why that would be the natural conclusion that I would draw. But maybe that, that that's another point. Let me let me use that to come into our last point here is we're talking about um, evangelism. Yeah. And how do we talk to people who are struggling with this or who have friends, family who are struggling with this, um, who, uh, you know, either are struggling with it from a standpoint of they personally feel it or they're being pulled into it from the standpoint of trying to love and show kindness towards somebody. And maybe they're being pulled into the ideology uh, as a result. And how do we talk to that? Um, I think one thing is just what you said, uh, it, um, Larson, in, in establishing that, that reality, because really in essence, this is a disconnect from reality. And so helping people see the importance of tethering ourselves to reality and ultimately a reality that is put there and created there by God. Um, but from that standpoint of you, you saying, how do I know that my feelings, you know, how can I trust my feelings? One of the things that um, I've seen people say along these lines and trying to help people work through this is to come to a place of trust in the creator. And when the creator says, this is the way I created you, I created you for these purposes. Um, instead of saying, instead of saying, I don't feel that way. And then trusting those feelings, trust the one who created you, who says he knows what's best for the body you inhabit for your biology and that he knows better than your feelings know. 
And I think if we can, if we can develop that kind of trust in God, and maybe we have to back way up in order to do that, and that's fine. We can take the time to do that. But if we develop that trust in God and a trust that says, I trust him more than my own thoughts, that's really where the Bible wants us to get, right? It's that's that's not that's not some uh, new notion that that we would trust God to that degree. That's precisely what God wants us to do uh, is trust him more than our own thoughts. And so when he says, here's what women are, here's what men are. And then and then I know that I'm a man. My biology says that So that's that's reality. So I know that. But I don't feel that. Then I say, OK, God says this is what a man is. I'm going to try to be that. Because I trust him more than I trust myself. Amen. Um, along those lines, it's, it's, go ahead, Ben. Oh, I was going to say, um, I mean, that's what being a Christian is about. We're, we're trusting the future resurrection when, when all this will be made right. And, uh, uh, but, but God and Jesus, Paul, they don't tell us, okay, fix your bodies. Now they say, fix your mind. First, transform yeah. your mind, the renewing of your mind. And then, you know, trust God to take care of your body. And that, that's one of the problems with the, the transgender approach to it is, well, let's start with a body and then hopefully our mind will get better. You know, and it's kind of. And the reality is the there's very little we can do to change the body. Yeah. Right? We have we have very limited capacity in what we can do to change that. And and much broader capacity in what we can do to change the mind, which, of course, is is where we're commanded. In a sense, it's like you're trying to create your own resurrection uh, mm-hmm. with instead of waiting for God. Yeah. For that resurrection. And, and doesn't it cultivate even more like self-hate? So I remember one psychologist that I had read who was comparing it to a time where African-Americans who had lighter skin passed as white so that they didn't have to suffer the uh maybe the stigmatism or the uh the the all of the problems that were associated with that and really what that reflected is they they couldn't be comfortable they were not allowed to be comfortable in who they were and basically isn't that what uh the transgender ideologists are doing is saying you are not what you're supposed to be, and we have to fix you, right? We have to make you, we have to make you better. And what that means is um, a horrific and awful process that very often is not only unsatisfactory, but increases the feelings of of disconnect. And and then that's it's 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 tragic in, in so many ways. One thing I would like to point out as far as when we talk about evangelism, one of my favorite passages is 1 John 2, 1 and 2, where John writes to his readers and says, my little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin, right? So we've been encouraging people to change their thinking about this and to turn away from it and to help other people to turn away from this. But then he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. I love that idea of, I'm writing these things to you so that you'll stop sinning, quit it. But if you do, there is hope, there's propitiation, we have an advocate, we have forgiveness. 
It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, where Paul goes through this list of things that they had participated in. And he says, and such were some of you, right? They literally could change their identity. They at one time were a thief or they were an adulterer or they were a coveter or whatever, but they didn't have to be that anymore because they were washed, they were sanctified. I don't have to be identified by the things about me that fall out of line with God's will. I can be identified by being washed and sanctified and justified, and I can do that if I will come to him and separate myself from those things and realize that the only way forward is submission to his will, and he'll forgive me, and he'll help me uh, put away those things and and develop a a new yearning and a new love and and ultimately a new identity in Christ. Yeah, I uh, you know we're preaching freedom. Yes, you know that's that's what we're preaching, and that's what people think they're going towards. Yeah, but they're not. They're going towards captivity. Yeah, and 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 I think th- that is the element we need to understand. We're preaching to captives. And that also helps us maintain a good attitude about it. My brother was making a uh, talk here at church the other night, and he made a connection between the occasion when the Syrian army or the Syrian king sent men to to go and capture Elisha. And uh, if you recall, um, Elisha says to his servant, "The one the, those with us are greater than than them." And so, you know, basically, we've got look look at God's army on our side. And so they take this military force captive. Then the king wants to know, what do we do with these captives? And Elisha says, well, you, you feed them and send them on their way. You know, they're captives. You know, we don't, we're not here just going to execute them. And so Elisha doesn't have this sort of steering hatred for these people who came to take him into captivity. And then he made a connection between that and what Paul says to Timothy, that we are preaching to people who have been taken captive. That's what we're talking about. People who have been taken captive. Um, they think that following their feelings is going to lead them to some freedom. And what we've got to show them is that there's no anchor there. You are adrift and you will stay adrift. And it will be a constant one after another. You'll find yourself uh, again and again feeling the emptiness of not finding that satisfaction because you followed after something that won't sit still. And that's one thing about this whole ideology. I think I think anybody should be able to look at this ideology and recognize and admit it certainly has not sat still. It is just constantly shifting the arguments, the terminology. Everything is constantly shifting with this. And it's because people are trying to get to a place where they can say, there, there, I finally found a place that I can grab hold of and I can say, this is me. And what God says is I'm the only firm thing. I'm the only thing that doesn't move. And so you got to grab hold of me. And so that's I think we need to, to preach with that sort of hopefulness that we understand that people feel hopeless. And what we're offering is some hope. Now, I know that message is not going to resonate with everybody um, because people are, you know, very, um, very invested in, in where they are sometimes. But as much as possible, um, that that's the kind of tone we want to use. Having said that, there is that argument of, of we want to be loving and and then people will take that and run with it. And if you're loving, you'll be acceptant, you'll be tolerant, you'll be affirming, all of those sorts of things. Um, but of course, it's it's not loving to encourage um, delusion. It's not loving to encourage 
lies. David, I, I know that you talked about this some as, as, as you've worked about language and accepting language and sort of uh, coming into that and, and how we address that and what's the best way that we can come up against that. I know you had a quote from, uh, I think, uh, Solzhenitsyn on that. Right. And, and you've got a good lead into it of like taking people from instability into stability. And so one of the things that, you know, oftentimes people ask, I'm sure you have all been asked this, or if you're watching, you may have asked this before of, so what do I do when I'm asked to use certain pronouns or different things like that? Or I'll say for lack of better terms, like to play along with something that we might believe is not true. And I think there's a danger in that, in that it's one, it's not helping you actually get to the end that you're hoping for that person. So if we're trying to give them some stability, one of my favorite passages for this, not just for this idea, but for like race issues or different things also, Second Corinthians 5, the end of the chapter, where he's like, uh, you know, we, we used to know Christ in the flesh, but we know him thus no longer, and we don't recognize anybody else according to the flesh any longer. And I think that if we're confident enough to recognize the reality in our language, we're helping to de-emphasize an issue that people have magnified, have over-magnified, and uh, actually isn't, you know, so much of the problem as we've been mentioning about, like, really, there's something going on with my mind and a bad way of thinking coming into this as opposed to more my body. Uh, and so if we can de-emphasize in various different ways, the what seems to be the big issue, we can get to the root of the thing, which, as we've mentioned tonight, is sin um, in some form or another. And so we can move on that way. And um, Stephen had mentioned Solzhenitsyn. There's a, an essay that he had written. Uh, so Solzhenitsyn had you know, kind of been involved in, in quote, Christian circles for a while. He, he'd been in prison for opposition to the state after many years of serving as a loyal soldier of the, uh, the Soviet regime. He'd been thrown into the gulags. He's famous for his book, uh, Gulag Archipelago uh, and others. But the last essay that he wrote before the Russians were just done with him and sent him away, uh, not to Siberia, but sent him out to the West, uh, was titled Live Not by Lies. And I think it's such a fascinating essay that if anybody has time to read the whole thing, um, it's not a super long read, but it is very interesting. And, and if you'll bear with me for a moment, just to read through a section of it, um, one of his arguments is because he was seeing not just stuff like gender things, but again, class and race and so forth as being language weapons used by the socialist revolution. He said, our way to fight our way through this, to navigate through this is to, quote, let not their rule hold through me. And so he said the way to do that was to, quote, never knowingly support lies. And he goes on to say, having understood where the lies begin, and many see that line differently, step back from that gangrenous edge. Let us not glue back the flaking scales of the ideology, nor gather back its crumbling bones nor patch together its decomposing garb, and we'll be amazed how swiftly and helplessly the lies will fall away. And that is destined, uh, that which is destined to be naked will be exposed as such to the world. And so he goes on to list like several practical ways. And I think this is really important for folks that feel nervous. They're working at a job that's starting to mandate different things and wondering, can I do this and also be sincere in what I know to be true? And he goes on to list some some uh, practicalities like that the upright man or the the um, the, the stand up man, uh, as he puts it, uh, will not write or sign or publish in any way a single line distorting the truth. 
uh, will not utter such a line in private or public conversation, nor read it from a crib sheet, nor speak it in the role of an educator or canvasser or teacher, so forth. Uh, will not in paintings or sculptures, we'd mentioned even architecture and things like that, try to convey the idea that things are not uh, really as they actually are. Uh, will not be forced to a demonstration or a rally if it runs counter to what I believe is true. Will not take up a banner or a slogan, which are obviously very popular, especially now, uh, in which he does not fully believe. Will not raise a hand and vote for a proposal he does not sincerely support. And he goes on to list all of these practicalities of what you've got to do is be a sincere person. And if we're even dealing with things like where I might struggle with my own body or whatever the case might be, that I've got to trust God and act sincerely there. And I think uh, that's how we can kind of like reappropriate the I'm an authentic person language is what it means to be an authentic person is to do God's will with what I have been given. Um, and so then he finishes up with this paragraph, uh, which says, yes, at first, it will not be fair. Someone will have to temporarily lose his job. For the young who seek to live by truth, this will at first severely complicate life. For their tests and quizzes, too, are stuffed with lies, and so choices will have to be made. But there is no loophole left for anyone who seeks to be honest, not even for a day. Not even in the safest technical occupations can he avoid even a single one of the listed choices to be made in favor of either truth or lies, in favor of spiritual independence or spiritual servility. And as for him who lacks courage to defend even his own soul, let him not brag of his progressive views, boast of his status as an academian or a recognized artist or distinguished citizen or general. Let him say to himself plainly, I am cattle, I am a coward. I seek only warmth and to eat my fill. I think that's one of the hardest things for myself also is that when you want to evangelize and speak about the truth, it's it really doesn't come down to my fear of them so much as my fear to say the thing that is true. And so whether it's um, gender dysphoria or all the problems that folks might have, we also are not asking anybody to deal with something that we too aren't dealing with in that trying to recognize the truth and be sincere. And I think that's uh, supremely helpful when we're trying to evangelize to anybody, uh, let alone this. Yeah, we have to remember it's it's the truth that will set us free, mm -hmm. not not uh, some compromise of it. And and certainly, you know, you don't you don't bring people out of the world by getting closer to the world with your language right um and so so uh, you know boy yeah i think those kind of thought processes we think that they're only a product of some distant communist regime and and we don't realize how much we can be called up maybe somebody's not pointing a gun at our head you know that there are threats you know of jobs and so forth and i think that we are coming to a reality of how serious it is but even if it doesn't look just like the communist regime, whatever pressure is coming, if I submit to it, the truth I've got to live up to is, as you say, as Solzhenitsyn says, I am a coward and I was not willing to say what was true. And I think that genuine truth, that's Jesus. You know, there's so many times where Jesus responds and it's shocking. And even his disciples say, hey, you know, the Pharisees, they didn't like what you just said. And uh, and they they think you're talking about them. And Jesus's response is, I am. That's why I said it, you know, 
And, and so I think for us, we're, we're so concerned about how it will be received as opposed to starting from the premise of, let me make sure I say what is true. I want to say it in a way that is palatable, that is helpful, but ultimately I want to say what's true. And, uh, and what we'll find is that what is true is more powerful than how it is said. So that even Jonah, who was the worst preacher that ever lived, <laughs> could go and tell people a true thing. No, he was worse. He was worse than Larson. He could go <laughs> and he could say to the Ninevites, you are going to be destroyed in 40 days. It's his whole sermon. But that truth changed a whole nation. Even when Jonah's attitude was horrible, that is not condoning horrible attitudes, but it is to give you confidence that the truth is powerful and that the truth is our evangelistic tool coming and going. And that that is the most important element uh, of our evangelism and trying to, to, to help people is that we are trying to tether people. We're trying to tether ourselves and, and in so doing help other people be tethered to the truth. And you might be the only person that tells that person that thing. Um, in, a, in you know, our culture, as we've been mentioning, is um, is big on affirmation and and uh, facilitating that. You might be the only person that says the true thing that sticks with them. Yeah, and and as we're calling other people to what First Corinthians six twenty says that you're not your own, you're bought with a price. I'm not my own, right? I am I am God's instrument to be used. And if if that means putting myself in a vulnerable position to proclaim the truth, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. And so I need to glorify God in my body, even as I'm calling those people as well. Well, guys, I, I really appreciate the um, thoughtfulness of the conversation tonight. A lot of um, uh, a lot of helpful, I think, uh, notions and thought processes as we're trying to, um, I think, articulate truth and um, and and think clearly, uh, it, there's a lot. There's so much lack of clarity uh, on this or any other issue. Is in social media makes all of that worse. As we're closing out, any any parting thoughts, guys? If you have questions about this, there are resources out there. We're not going to give just like a blanket recommendation of things, but if you do have questions about specific things. There are things we can put you in touch with that I think are helpful. Um, of course, everything that's not God's word has to be taken with a critical eye. But there are things that have been helpful to me and kind of thinking through this and maybe thinking about different aspects and what we could talk about. So you can email us or private message us uh, and uh, and reach out to Brian and, and ARE and, and the guys there. Yeah. All right. Sure do appreciate it. And um, as we're closing out, just a couple of more things. First of all, uh, as we've already mentioned, this is recorded. You'll be able to watch it uh, later on YouTube. There's a podcast that you can tune into to listen to the whole thing uh, and, and play back if you would like. Or if you've tuned in late, you can catch uh, the rest of the show. Um, the Tuesday night series that has been going on, um, Getting Out of Your Head, uh, I think I'm uh, pronouncing that or, or phrasing that right or keeping my head on straight. That's what it is. Keeping my head on straight. It's coming to an end and beginning on January 3rd, we're going to start a new series on Tuesday nights, a study of Ecclesiastes. That will be Tuesday night starting January 3rd. That is, uh, of course, at 8 p.m. Eastern. Um, 
We're going to continue, of course, our Wednesday Q&A. And uh, again, we invite you to ask questions for that. Maybe you have a question about transgenderism. So you can submit those. You can email them to questions at answeringreligiousera.com, private messages at Facebook, facebook.com forward slash answeringreligiousera. Um, and, and use one of those two methods. If you comment on one of our videos, we probably won't see that. Uh, and so um, just understand that um, is not is not the most effective communication. One more thing, Monday through Friday at 5 a.m. Eastern each day, uh, the Daily Answer with Mark Dunnigan drops and uh, he, he offers some quick and helpful insights. Good way to start your day each morning. So we invite you to tune into that. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in this evening. Um, and we pray that we all are looking for the truth. We pray that this has been helpful in clarifying some elements of truth and that we'll continue to be able to study together um, and look forward to seeing you in the other Answering Religious Airs shows. Thank you so much.